Anyway, but you know, you can get so, you can get so tunnel visioned about anything that you miss the big picture. And that happens a lot in life. We, we come to conclusions about things based on just tidbits of information, and we need to take a look at the big picture. And so in this particular passage that we're going to study this morning, if you've got your Bibles, open it to 1 John, and we'll turn to chapter 2, and uh, make some observations that um, I think that there, this passage, there are some things in this passage that are confusing and even dangerous if you don't consider all of the facts that are laid out as we go through it. So what I want to do is challenge you to kind of just put aside any thoughts that you have on what this passage is teaching for a moment and try to be open-minded as to what it actually is saying. And in 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 18. We'll start there. We read, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And from this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, and that is eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. In this section in 1 John, we're going to examine and uh, answer the question, what is the anointing? If you've got your Bibles in front of you, look at verse 20 for a second. He's showing a contrast. When you see the word but in the Bible, you're always looking at something that's going to contrast the previous thought. So he's saying there's, there's one type of situation, but now I want you to understand something about that. There's a contrasting view. And so he goes through and says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And in verse 27 it says, as for you, the anointing which you've received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you. This particular passage is, is, revolves around this central theme, and that is, what is this anointing that is being taught? This passage of Scripture is the only place that this concept is taught, the anointing. And because of that, guess what happens? There are a lot of distorted views about what is being taught. Anytime that you have something in the Bible that's not mentioned more than in one or two passages, you end up with a situation where people read into it and they want it to mean whatever it is that they want it to mean. And it's very dangerous. So what we're going to do is just let this particular passage interpret its own passage and that's the way to interpret Scripture. The Bible always interprets itself. One time I, was hearing, I heard a debate, and it was a particular cult member who was debating a Christian over the validity of the Bible. I don't know if you realize this or not, 
But every time we get together, one of the, the foundations of what we teach is always from the Bible. And so you've got to stop and think about something. I, and, I, and I share with many people in our Bible studies and, and people that we're dealing with on the ramps. And one of the things that I always make sure that they understand is that my point of reference that I'm going to come from is right here. It was the Bible. Now, if the Bible is inaccurate, the Bible is not wrong, then everything that I believe and everything that I'm going to say falls apart. Because everything that I know about Jesus is found in the Bible. Everything I know about heaven is found in the Bible. Everything I know about hell is found in the Bible. Everything I know about how to get to heaven is found in the Bible. And if the Bible is not accurate, then I don't have any basis of reference or point of reference that's solid. So what we need to be convinced of is that the Bible is what it claims to be, and that is God's written word to mankind to tell us what God has to say about all of those subjects. So if you really want to understand what you believe, you need to understand how reliable the Bible is. And I think that's where a lot of us go wrong, is that we're not convinced that this really is the Word of God that's given to us so that we can have the answers to all of life's problems and all of life's questions. Believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you go to it. So anyway, one day there was a debate that was going on and uh, one particular individual who was a cult member said, you know what, I don't believe in the validity of the Bible. And the guy he was debating said, well, why not? He said, because everything that you believe is found in the Bible and everything that you use to support the Bible is found in the Bible. And so you use one basic source to validate what your beliefs are. And then he thought for a second. That's an excellent point. If that was right, he'd have a great point. Because if I took a work of, uh, of any writing and I use that book exclusively to say what that book said, well, you're not going to get a contrary opinion because the person who wrote the book is going to be consistent all through it, right? So his point was very simple. He said, you know what? That'd be exactly right if that was true. But the Bible isn't one work. The Bible is a collection of works, a collection of books that have been put together in one book form for us, but the reality of it is that there are 66 books in the Bible. And it was written over a 1,500-year period of time. There were 40 different authors who wrote it. So it wasn't one person's idea, and it wasn't one book, but it was 40 different people over a 1,500-year period of time who had written this, and there were 27,000 manuscripts on the New Testament only, and there's no other literary work in history that has as many manuscripts to validate its authenticity, and yet any other English class that you'd go in any major university would look at Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and say that those are valid works of Homer, and they've got 9,000 manuscripts to support support it so the point that he was making was very simple we have a very reliable source for everything that we believe and so my point very simply is this if this passage is not taught anywhere else in the bible and this particular concept of the anointing is not taught anywhere else in the bible there is nothing else in the bible that would be what would lead us to um, interpret it other than the passage itself and anything that would help us to understand it from in the bible so i bring this up because there's a very serious problem with this concept of the anointing. Because it's not taught, there's a lot of confusion over it. Because it's not taught anywhere else but this passage, there's a lot of confusion over what it means. For example, some people say that God speaks to them directly and they have been, quote, anointed by God to tell us what God wants us to know. I've been anointed by God to tell you this. Others have been, quote, anointed by God to tell us things that are in contradiction to what's found in the Bible. And it's amazing to me how many cult leaders and, and uh, either, even cult founders are, quote, called the anointed ones by their congregations, and how can you question an anointed one of God? 
If this person indeed is anointed, then you can't question them. And who are we? Just mere peons because this person has a special relationship with God and is on a higher plane than we are. So everything they say must be right, even though it's in direct contradiction to the Bible. There's a very real problem with that. Third observation I've made about this whole concept of anointing, invariably I've been asked to speak at different places where someone, and I'm not sure what exactly they're thinking when they do it, but somebody who will introduce me will invariably pray this. Lord, please anoint our speaker this morning, or please anoint our speaker this evening, or please anoint our speaker this weekend. And so I'm bowing, I'm praying, I'm listening to this prayer, and I always go like this. Like, what are they talking about? What do they mean? I want to stop everything right there and just do just a little session on this. And, uh, but, but it, and it concerns me because we throw that term out as if it means something like, boy, better, better anoint this guy because we see what we're working with here. You know? You know? Reach out from heaven and put your hand on his head so we know. You know, walk around. You know if God's going to do it, he might as well pick me up and move me around too. But the point is, it's like, hey, you know, I think, don't pray for me if you don't know what you're praying about, please. In fact, it reminds me of a great story. This, this last, um, no, this is great, you'll like this. This, this, um, this my, I know you didn't like the jokes, I'm trying to make it up, it's kind of kiss-up time here. Um, but uh, last season, when the Rams were playing the 49ers, and um, all throughout the week, Bubba Paris uh, plays for the San Francisco 49ers, and a uh, guy loves the Lord, he's a great guy. But he's a big guy, and he's a mean football player, but he's a great guy off the field. Anyway, so one of the coaches for the Rams was trying to get their guys fired up against playing for Bubba, against Bubba Paris. Bubba Paris is like 340 pounds, and that's before he puts his equipment on. You know? So it's a pretty intimidating thought to play against Bubba Paris. Anyway, so what he was trying to do is firing up the guys. He said, you know, Bubba Paris is nothing but a fat derriere. And uh, he didn't know any French, so he used the English word for it. And... Uh, <laughs> So, and he went through this whole week doing this, man. He was just trying to get this guy, and he just went through this whole thing. Anyway, so, so game time, um, they come, they play, 49ers win because they're playing in Anaheim Stadium. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so Bubba Paris goes up to this particular coach, and he says, Hey, I understand that you've been calling me bad names all week. And it's about, this is about the right size here, what we're looking at. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the coach goes, well, What do you mean? He goes, well, I heard you've been calling me a fat duh, 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 all week long. And the coach going, well, I didn't mean anything by it. You know, I was just trying to, trying to get the guys fired up, you know, fired up to play against you, blah, blah, blah. He goes, well, I'm going to tell you something. That's not nice. <laughs> and then he went like this. He put his arm around and said, but you know what? I love you, and I'm praying for you. <laughs> and the coach went like this. Don't be praying for me. <laughs> <laughs> don't pray for me. You know, I thought about that because it's like, hey, you know what? If you don't know what you're praying about, please don't pray for me either, you know? It's kind of that type of situation. So we'll go down through it. And uh, one of the things that we need to understand because of the confusion is that we need to understand what the anointing is. If we don't have a clue, then here's some other words that are used in the Bible that have to do with the anointing. Now, I want you to follow through with this for a second because this is really simple. What is the anointing? Well, let's see. Christianos that's used in the New Testament refers to Christians, means that you're an anointed one. Are you following this for a second? This is very important. Because basically what it is, is if you are an anointed one, you are, an, you are a Christian. You're not on a higher plane than anybody else who's anointed, because if you're anointed, you're a Christian just like everybody else. That's like saying, and this one always drives me crazy too, but uh, he's a born-again Christian. What is that? That's pretty redundant. 
because in order to become a Christian, one must be born again. So if you're born again, you're a Christian. See, our problem is that we've got a whole different definition of what all these other Christians are. Because this one's a born-again Christian, I'm just a good old American Christian. You know what I mean? It's like somehow there's, there's, there's got to be a difference or we wouldn't have to come up with a born-again Christian type of phraseology that we use, right? You're either a Christian or you're not. So the point is, in the Bible, it's you're either anointed or you're not. And if you're anointed, you're a Christian. If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're a saint, you're a Christian. And if you ain't, you're not. So you're a saint or you ain't. And that's the way that it works. But we've got all these structures that we've created. You know, this person's a saint. Well, what makes them a saint? Because they were what? I have no idea. But what they're saying is that there's a higher level of spirituality that we can attain somehow. If you're a saint, then you've done such, 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 and whatever the man-made criteria is, and I know what they are, but I don't even want to share them with you. But it's ridiculous. Because the Bible says you're a saint or you ain't. You're a Christian or you're not. You're born again. And if you're not, you're not a Christian. You're anointed, and if you're not, you're not a Christian. That's the way it works. So it's pretty simple. Anyway, so what we're going to look at is, as we go through this, there's three facts from this passage that we're going to deal with. And um, some of this is going to be a little bit um, offending to some of you. And I understand that, but I'm working on sensitivity. <laughs> 1991. Sensitivity in 91. That was my motto. So I just want to let you know. So, so if I offend you, it's your problem. Because... <laughs> I'm being sensitive. <laughs> and I know that. And that's just the kind of the way that works. So what we're going to do is, because of all the confusion and the danger that's involved in it, and all the stuff that we hear out there about God's anointed ones, and you can't question the anointed ones of God, and you can't challenge what they're saying because they're getting revelation from God, and all that kind of junk, let's just resolve that right here this morning, and you'll know how to handle it the next time. You know, And, and stop and think about something for a minute. If somebody's praying for me to be anointed by God, and they've invited me to speak, they're dumber than they look. Because they sure are putting God on the spot to convert me right before I speak and represent Him. You know, it's really nice to get to know Him a little bit ahead of time before you do some of this stuff. So anyway, number one, you ready? The anointing comes from the Holy One. Right? Let's go through it. First John 20, 20 says this. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Say, if you don't know anything else about, quote, the anointing, one thing that we do know is where it comes from. We receive the anointing from the Holy One. Talk about this in a second. You got your Bible still open? Look at something for a moment. Look at verses um, 18 and 19. This is very, very important. Look at what it says. Children, it's the last hour, and just if you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it's the last hour. Follow this for a moment. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Two different types of people, right? You know what really fries me, really ticks me off, is that we are a society that is determined to categorize and group people. We are. We are a society that's determined to do it. Whether we want to or not, we do it. And one of the things that concerns me as we go through this is we need to understand something. First of all, I want you to identify the two types of people. Okay? 
Look, it says, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. There's a contrast there. And the question is, who are they? They are Antichrists. All right? But I want to talk about that in one second. We want to categorize people. We've got the obvious categories. We've got black. We've got white. We've got rich. We've got poor. We've got tall. We've got skinny. We've got ethnic groups all over our country who gather together and they form some exclusive community. Back in Pennsylvania, we've got Little Italy. We've got Germantown. We've got the Polish section. We've got the Puerto Rican section. You've got everything. And it's all, we categorize things. We've got groups of everything. And it really is upsetting in a lot of ways because what ends up happening in the Bible is that, you know what, there are two categories of people that you'll find that God talks about. There is they and there is us. And that is it. There are going to be those who are under the they category that are black, that are white, that are rich, that are poor, that are tall, that are skinny, that are short, that are Italian, that are Jewish, that are Polish, that are whatever. There are the us category. You're going to have the same type of people under the us category. There are they and there are us. Those are the only two groups of people that the Bible refers to. And I just pray someday that we, whatever category that we find ourselves in, and hopefully if it's in the us category, that we would recognize that God only sees two types of people. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't look at the color of skin. He doesn't look at how much money someone has in the bank. He doesn't look at whether you're fat or skinny or blonde or brunette or blue-eyed or brown-eyed or whatever the categories that we put each other in. The only thing that he sees is whether a person is in the they category or the us category. And that's it. And God help us if we're in the us category to get a good handle on that because we are stumbling and causing a lot of people to fall by our bigotry in whatever area that it is. And it's just not racial that I'm talking about. There's a lot of other bigotry that we need to deal with. And so he says there's a they and there's an us. And that's all the Bible ever talks about. And it's important as we try to understand what the anointing is that we understand that first and foremost that there's two categories of people. And so he says, who are they? Look at verse 18. It answers it. They are antichrist. He says, there is an Antichrist, the Antichrist who is coming. Romans 13, 1 through 10 gives us a very clear picture of a coming world leader who will be a political figure who is against the cause of Jesus Christ here on earth. He is a political opponent of Jesus Christ. He hates the things of God. He will do everything that he can to get rid of the people of God. And what he wants to do is oppose God's kingdom here on earth. He is the Antichrist. That's one. But there's a problem. It says, even now, many antichrists have arisen. So the prefix anti means two things. One is to mean to be opposed. If I'm anti-whatever, if I'm anti-drugs, I'm against drugs. But there's also another meaning for the word, and that means that it could be an imitation or a substitute or very similar in character and nature, but not the same. So many antichrists have arisen. Meaning very simple, simply this, there are a lot of antichrist people who have the similarities of Christians, but who are not Christians. Who pretend to teach from the Bible and pretend to follow God in his ways, but teach something totally opposite. And there's also coming a time, you read Revelations 13, where there will be a religious leader who will meet that particular category as well. There will be a political leader who will oppose the things of God. There will be a religious leader who will be a cheap substitute for Jesus Christ. 
and the world will rally around that substitute or that imitation. Why is this important to talk about? Because he designates what the problem is. Look what he says. Now understand this. They went out from us. Who are they? Antichrists. Those who are similar in looks, external appearances, they say all the right things, they do all the right things, they know the jargon, they know, oh, this or that, they can tell you, they can quote a Bible verse, they can do all kind of things. But the problem is that what he's saying is simply this. Not everyone, and this is going to make this very personal, and I know it's going to offend you, but not everybody in this room is a Christian. According to the biblical definition. Not everybody who hears this tape is a Christian according to the biblical definition. That's a very solemn and sobering thought, but it's something that we can't skirt around. And it's very important that we understand it. Why? Because he says this, they went out from us. They were sitting with us. They came to Bible studies with us. They were in our church. They were in our Sunday school class. They were even teaching. They were teachers that were teaching. They were one of us. They look like one of us. They talk like one of us. They sounded like one of us. They quoted the same passages that we did. They did all those things. They were one of us. But you know what? But they weren't really one of us. And you know how we knew it? For if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. But they didn't. They left us. And they went out on their own. And in order that we would know who they are and who we are. Do you understand what's being taught here? Let me just tell you something. And it's very significant. How do I know if I'm a they or an us? How do you know sitting here if you're a they or an us? Are you going to be one who leaves or are you going to be one who stays? How do you know whether you're real or not? How, many, how do you know if you're really a Christian or not? That's what he's talking about. And the way that we find out is over a period of time. Over a period of time. You know why? Mark chapter 4 says, a lot of stuff like this is really exciting to people. Man, we come and we hear a whole different and fresh perspective on life and we listen to what the Bible has to say and we think, man, that's great. No one's teaching that. That's something different. It's so different than everything I hear. And, I'm, and, and you meet new friends who invite you to something like this or to a Bible study or to bring you to church and you like what you see in their life and you see a quality of their marriage or with their relationship with their kids or how they conduct their business. And there's something attractive about a person who is walking in obedience with God. There really is. There's an attractive lifestyle that goes along with that. And God uses it to attract people to the truth of who he is. But you know what inevitably happens after a period of time? Oh, the newness wears off, the fascination wears off, the, the thrill wears off, and you know what? And persecution comes up, or riches, or other things. You know, a lot of people turn to God because business is bad right now. Oh, man, oh, Lord, help me, help me, help me. And then business turns around again. It's like, oh, don't need God anymore. Don't need to check into this anymore. Business is back on track. So we're back over this way. And the deceitfulness of riches comes in and chokes out that desire to know the truth of who God is and what his plan is for our life. And so what John is saying is that, you know what, there are people in this room who have come here for a variety of reasons and only God knows what your heart is. I don't, and I don't really care. All I'm here to do is to tell you what this is, this is saying. And that is very simply that you better find out whether you're one of they or one of us. And the way that you'll find out is over a period of time, if you leave the association of believers... Other Christians, you don't want to be around them anymore. You don't like what the Bible's saying about your lifestyle. Uh, it's in opposition to what you want to do with your life. Uh, you get tired of this whole scene, and you leave, and you go back to the way that you were. And then guess what? You're one of them. All right? If you stay, and it's not because you stay 
that makes you right with God. It's the fact that you are right with God that you'll stay. You follow what I'm saying? And he, dif- he differentiates between the two groups. And it's interesting as you go through it that even Jesus and his disciples uh, had an interesting situation when it came to Judas. Jesus said that one of you who are in this room tonight is going to betray me. And you know what they said? It's Judas. We knew it all the time. We could tell the difference. You know what they said? Is it, is it me? Is it I, Lord? Am, I'm the, am I the one? Who was it? And they went back and forth in this group and thought, who could it be? We can't tell the difference. Wouldn't it be nice if when you came to a point where you accepted Christ into your life, that God put a little green dot on your ear or something? It's like when we couldn't really tell the players apart, we can go and you know, lift your hair up and go, oh, okay, green dot, you're in. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That'd be great, but God doesn't do that. And so our problem is, and my problem in discerning what's going on as I, as I deal with a lot of people is, are they they or us? Are they in or out? And so I'm going to ask you a couple things, and I want you to think about it. And this is very personal, but it's important that you understand it. You see, because it was to a religious leader that Jesus said this, you must be born again if you're ever going to get into the kingdom of God. If you're going to go to heaven, here's a religious leader, imitation man, he looked good up front, but God knew his heart. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not, sir, get into the kingdom of God. When you die, you are not going straight to heaven. That's what he said. And unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this is the personal part that I have to share with you. You need to know whether you're a them or an us. Is there ever a point in time where you personally, individually, not collectively, not with the group, not with anybody else, is there ever a point in time where you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and to forgive you of your sin, of rebellion against God and his ways? See, the Bible says that Jesus is God in human flesh that he came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins and my sins. And that if we would believe that and nothing else, then we would be right with God. Is there ever a time where you personally have asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and to forgive you for your sins? If you say yes, then the rest of these questions should also be a yes. Was there ever a point in your time after you asked Jesus Christ to come into your life that there was a radical change in your lifestyle? and your attitudes, not only toward God and what He says, but also toward others? Was there a change in your life toward God and toward others? Was there evidence of that? Is there a desire in your life to learn more about God and His ways, to study the Word of God? In 1 Peter it says that like newborn babes, we should long for the pure milk of the Word of God, and that in it we would grow and respect our salvation. Do you have a hunger and a desire for the things of God, to learn more about 1978, I asked Jesus Christ into my life. I started reading the Bible for the first time. We had it on coffee tables. I saw it laying around different times. Looked at it a few times. Went, boy, this is pretty stupid stuff. And then for the first time in my life, I picked up a Bible and started to read it, and I couldn't put it down. It was like something I'd never experienced before. This book reveals who God is and what he desires for my life. I can't get enough of it. And you know why? Because it's part of that new nature. Do you have to tell your baby to eat? That baby tells you when it wants to eat. That nature that that baby has is, when I'm hungry, I want to eat. And it starts to cry, and it'll cry until you feed it. That's part of its nature. And for a person who's asked Christ to come into their life, part of that new nature that God gives you is a hunger and a thirst for the things of God. (coughs) And you start to read, and you start to study, and you can't get enough of it. See, is that true of your life? If it is, 
then you're meeting all the objective standards that the Bible says will help you to understand that you really are a child of God. To as many as received Christ, he gave them the right to become children of God. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who hunger for the word of God, are of God. They are not they, they are us. And see, we need to have an understanding of that. And do you love Jesus? Are you embarrassed by the thought of it? Are you embarrassed when people challenge you in that particular stand? I love Jesus Christ. I couldn't say that 13 years ago. I can say it today. I love Him, you know why? Because I know Him. And I know what He did for me. And I can't get enough of His love for me. And because He loves me, I can love you. And I can love people I used to hate. See, that is evidence according to the Bible. This isn't according to how I feel and how I've responded to what has happened to me. But this is what the Bible says should be true of every person who says that they're, quote, a Christian. Is that true of your life? If it's not true of your life, then according to the Bible, you're an imitation. You're a counterfeit. You're hanging out with the right crowd, but just being with the right crowd isn't going to get you into heaven. It may please your spouse. It may please your friends. It may please your boss, whoever you're kissing up to by going through the motions. It may please all those people because they don't really know where your heart is. But God does. And so what you need to understand is that that's not going to get you in. Coming here isn't going to get you in. Coming here is going to give you the information on what it takes to get in. Let me share with you a story about a lady who was in London. She was a prostitute. And she was dying of pneumonia. She lived in the streets. And in London, if you have pneumonia and you're dying and you live in the streets, you've got a real problem. But she had pneumonia and she had a little boy. And she knew she was dying, and she sent her little boy to a church. She said, I want you to find a minister because I need someone to tell me how I can get in, was how she put it. What she was saying was, somebody can tell me how I can get into heaven. And she said, I need you to find a minister. Somebody can help me get in. So he walked around the streets of London. He found an old Gothic church, and he knocked on the door, and the minister came to the door, and he said, excuse me, sir, but my mom needs help. And he could tell by looking at him, they had ratty clothes, and he lived out in the streets, and he knew that they had other problems, and he didn't want anything to do with them. He said, I need, I, need, I need you to come and help my mom because she needs to know how to get in. And he said, well, son, why don't you call a policeman because he obviously thought she was drunk and living in the streets. He said, why don't you call a policeman and maybe they have a shelter that she, they can take her to so that she can get in. And he thought she might get in out of the rain because it was raining. And he said, no, sir, she wanted me to come to a minister because she wanted someone to help her to get in. And so he didn't really know what to do, and he knew that he couldn't reject what this little boy was saying. So he went and he got his raincoat, and he got his umbrella, and he picked up his Bible. And he started to go with him. But he didn't know what he was going to say to this lady, because for years what this preacher had preached was that in order to be right with God, you had to clean up your act. You had to change your lifestyle. You had to stop living in the streets. You had to stop prostituting. You had to stop adultery. You had to stop fornication. You had to stop drinking. You had to stop smoking. You had to stop doing all these things, because that was the way that you please God. That's how you are going to get in. And so he knew that as he was going there, he didn't know what to say because he, she didn't have time to change all those things about her life. She was dying. And he was really scrambling because all those years that he had preached that message weren't, weren't really going to work for him tonight. And he said he remembered a story in, in a particular passage that his, that his mother used to always talk. And uh, he didn't even know what the passage was, but he knew what the verse was. And it was John 3.16. It's an amazing thing. He had to look it up. And as he got to this particular woman, the only passage of Scripture that he really knew anything about was John 3.16. And he read it to her. 
And she said, well, what do I have to do to get in? And he said, well, it says here, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but would have eternal life. I said, so I guess to get in, all that you need to do is just believe in Jesus. And she said, is that all I have to do? And he was really struggling because he knew what he preached every week. And that wasn't what he always preached. But for the first time, he read it and he understood it. He said, well, that's what it says to do. And if I were you, that's what I'd do. And that night, as she died in the streets, she asked Jesus Christ to come into her life. This pastor told this story about 10 years later. Because what he said was, he goes, you know what? That night, not only did I have the privilege of helping her get in, but I got in myself. You see what the message is here? There are they and there are us. And the bad news is that some of us are they today. But the good news is that to go from they to us happens in a moment in time. And that's the moment that you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. You believe what the Bible says about him, that he died for you, that he loves you. And that's all that it takes to go from being a they to an us. That's a wonderful thought. And it's important that we understand that as it revolves around what the anointing is. Because as we go through this, you'll see that the anointing comes from Christ. It comes from the Holy One of God. And that's what Jesus said, that He was the anointed one. In Luke 4, 18-21, it says this, the, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus speaking, as He quotes Isaiah 61, because God has anointed me. God the Father has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said, I am the anointed one of God. And the anointing that we have comes from him. And that's exactly what John says. But you have an anointing that comes from the Holy One. It's critical that we understand that Jesus Christ is the Holy One or the anointed one of God. And that the anointing that we receive, we receive because of our relationship with Him. Our, the anointing that we have comes from Jesus as we enter into right relationship with Him. The second thing is that the anointing is received from Christ and it abides in all true believers. 1 John 2.27 says, As for you, you notice how it is? He's saying that, look, wait a minute, there's they and there's us. The they will leave over a period of time. The newness will wear off. The thrill will wear off. They'll go back to their old ways. But then there's us. And us are you. And you have an anointing. You have an anointing you receive from Him that remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in Him. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says at that moment that you are imparted with the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes to indwell you. His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. And so what he's saying is that the moment that you receive the Holy Spirit in your life, you have the anointing that comes from Jesus Christ. You follow this? This is critical. Because if you're a Christian, you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so there's no hierarchy of people who can tell you anything different. 
the anointing is received from Christ and abides in all true believers. And it's important because there are teachers who would have people believe that you're anointed with God and then he removes his anointing. Think about the implication of that. If you are anointed by God, then you're made right with God. And if he can remove that back from you again, then then you're not right with God. So now you're in a process of, am I right today? Am I not right today? Am I doing the right things? And we go through the whole work system. But our relationship with God isn't based on works. It's based on what Jesus did. And that's his work. And that's the only work that God is satisfied with. So the moment you believe what Jesus did is the moment you become anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. And he never removes that anointing from you. So, quote, once you're right with God, you're always right with God. The problem that we have externally is that we don't know who's right with God, and the only way we do know is if there's evidence of that over a long period of time, then we can be pretty confident that that person is right with God based on the biblical definition and not based on what we think we need to do. Are you following this? This is important. And so, conversely, everyone who has ever trusted in Christ has already been anointed by the Holy One, and has been given, each one of us has been given the Holy Spirit who will never be removed from us. Which leads to the very last thing. And that is that the anointing enables us to know the difference between truth or error concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Let me go through this quickly so that you have a good understanding of what's going on. Every, every cult, you know it's amazing how many cults actually start by people who have left, quote, Christian churches. They were one of us. And they left, and we knew they weren't one of us because they left, and they went out, and they started teaching false teachings about who the person of Jesus Christ. Every cult can be identified by one characteristic. And you know what it is? Who they say that Jesus Christ is. Oh, really? Oh, looking good here. We got good teaching, sounds good. Who do you say that Jesus is? He is a God. He is a God, huh? How did, he, how did he become a God? He met these qualifications. He did all these things, and he became a God. Oh, really? I had a guy who worked for me who was a Mormon, and he gave me that line one time. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If you're a liar and you deceive people, could you ever become a God in your church? Oh, no, there's no way a liar or a deceiver could become a God in your church. I said, well, how did Jesus do it? I said, what are you talking about? Well, Jesus said he was God, not a God. And he said that if you believed in him, that you had eternal life and that you were going to be in heaven, you were made right with God. And if he's not a liar and a deceiver, then he is God. Then well, how does that fall into what you're teaching? Well, we don't want to come out and really say bad things about Jesus or too many people would be catch on to that right away. So what we do is we say all the flowery, nice things about Jesus so that people here just fall into the trap and get sucked in by all the nice people that are there leading everybody to hell and say, but they have such nice family lives. And all the rest of it. You know, and I'm not too, I'm trying to be harsh and too critical here, but what I'm trying to do is teach it in light of what's being taught here, and that there are many people who are out there teaching things that sound flowery and good from the outside, and it's pre- presenting a nice lifestyle, but the problem is that's as far as that lifestyle goes, because at the end of that lifestyle, you go direct to hell. Every cult can be identified with who they say Jesus is. Who the J.W. say he is? He's an angel. He's a Michael the archangel. Oh, really? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hey, Thomas, how many times are you going to ask these questions? Philip, what about you? You've seen me. You know me. If you've seen me, you know the Father. I and the Father am one. So let me get this straight, okay? You can't have a belief in God outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that's pleasing to God. It's impossible. Why? Because Jesus is God. 
How can you believe in God and not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ? It's impossible to do according to the Bible. You believe in God, then you believe also in me. That's what Jesus said. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Okay? So that anointing, the Holy Spirit's presence in a believer's life helps to reveal the nature and the identity of Antichrist, whether you're a substitute or whether you're against the things of God. The second thing is it also reassures us of eternal life. And this is the promise in verse 25, which Jesus himself made to us, eternal life. Eternal life is based upon the promises of Jesus. You and I will be in heaven because that's what Jesus said if we put our faith and trust in him. And if his word's no good, then nothing else is good and all this is wrong, so what are we wasting our time for? But if it's right, then we don't need any other assurance than that. Jesus said it, I believe it. That's as simple as it gets. You know, the old bumper said, Bible said, I believe it. People say, well, check your brains out at the door. No, no, I don't at all because if the Bible says I believe it, why? Because I'm convinced of the reliability of the Bible. I spend time studying the reliability of the Bible. I believe what the Bible says. So it's just not if the Bible says I just blindly believe it. The Bible says it because I believe it, because I've studied the Bible, and I'm convinced that it's valid. So it's as simple as that. And the last thing is that it removes the need for human confirmation or human reasoning about our relationship with God. Look what it says. And as for you, the anointing which you've received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. You know what's amazing to me? Let me, just, let me just run this by you. If you're not convinced that you have a right relationship with God, if you're not convinced as you sit here today that if you died today that you're going straight to heaven, if you are not convinced of that, there is nothing in the world that I'm going to say to make you feel better about that. You see what I'm saying? There is nothing in the world that will make anybody here feel better today about the fact that they're not sure if they're going to heaven. Hey, you're a good guy, don't worry about it, you know? And you may feel good, and as soon as you leave my presence and you're alone, you're going, huh, I, I don't, I, hey, can two more people say how good I am? How about three? Do I need four? How about six? I need a dozen people in my life to say that I'm really a good guy, and if anybody has a shot at going to heaven, it's you. You can have a thousand people tell you what a wonderful person you are, but if, that's not going to convince you. You know what will convince you? When you ask Jesus Christ into your life, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. And His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. Just as nobody here is going to convince me that I'm not going to heaven because the Spirit of God teaches me the things of God. And I can't tell you you are going to heaven because if you don't have the Spirit of God living within you, then you're being convicted about the fact that you don't have a right relationship with God. And you know in your heart that you, don't have, that you haven't made that right yet. You see how it works? See, people try to stroke one another and you got religious leaders who are telling people, if you just meet these ten lists of things, that you're going to heaven. And the problem is you meet those ten lists of things, and then they change it and they add two more. Then you've got to meet those two more. And you're never really sure whether, even when you're meeting the list of things, that you're right with God, because God won't let you be sure of that. Because He loves you and He wants you to know Him. Do you follow what's being taught here? In conclusion, the anointing very simply is this. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of every believer. Now, that's even redundant because every believer has the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who are given to them by Jesus Christ the moment that you ask Jesus Christ into your life. There's nothing more important that we can do to wrap all this up than to just say this. This is a good news, bad news story. The bad news is, if you're not convinced today that you're going to heaven if you died, then you're not. The good news is that you can ask Jesus into your life today and you can go from being them to one of us in a moment of time because it's a, it's a work of God and not of anything that you could do. 
So why don't we pray in closing and we'll get that straightened out. Father, we just pray that uh, this morning that what you have to say in this particular passage about the anointing and all the confusion in our society about people who are somewhat on a higher plane and a higher level that we can be taught by them and we don't question or challenge them because they're anointed ones of God. Help us to put that to rest right now. Your word is very clear that all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are anointed ones of God. The anointing is the presence of your spirit within the life of everyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God, how how terrible it would be for me to leave here today and knowing that there are people who aren't sure of their relationship with you and not give them an opportunity to ask for forgiveness and to put their faith and trust in your word and what it says about Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to get that right relationship worked out, that knows that if they died today, they're not sure what would happen to them, that they would just pray that, um, that they would ask your forgiveness. Father, we just ask that you forgive me for being in rebellion against you, for thinking that I could work out things on my own and realizing that I can't. I believe for the first time that Jesus Christ is God, that he came to this earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for my sins. And just as it said, that if I just believe in that, that I would have eternal life. Lord, I just thank you for that. I thank you for coming into my life. I thank you for forgiving me. And Lord, I just ask that um, you would give me a hunger and a desire for spiritual things, that I could grow closer to you so I can live a life that's pleasing to you. Father, I just thank you for all that uh, have put their faith and trust in you, that have a hunger for spiritual things, a desire to know more about you, that are living lives of obedience, and that uh, this message could be clearly understood by all so that when we're sharing with others, just as that minister did in England, that we can let people know that simply by faith and trust in Christ that we're made right with God. Not to tag all the things of do's and don'ts onto the back of it, but just to leave it plain and simple. And what a great reunion we'll have one day as we're all in your presence, knowing that your word is true, and what a wonderful reunion it'll be. And we look forward to it in Christ's name. Amen.